of me. Perfect. <laughs> well, welcome. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. Thank you so very much. And at this moment, I'd like to start by saying that in co-creative and, and only in absolute service to the eternal source and its ever-loving healing devotion to all life everywhere that we gather together. And each moment is such a blessing, whether we meet in person or we meet on Zoom. We make the best of it because everything is part of the source. Everything comes from the source and we're all within the source. So it's up to us to make the most of this moment. And to those, all of you, if you have friends that resonates to, the, to, to this podcast, please tell a friend. Today, we are happy and honored to have Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for asking me. This is just a real honor to be on your podcast. And with me are two other podcasters from different corners of the world, and you'll get to know them more as we continue this live stream. Now, Dr. Singleton is a board-certified anesthesiologist and past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. She graduated from Stanford and earned her medical degree at UCSF Medical School. And Dr. Singleton also completed her two years of surgery residency at University of California at San Francisco Medical Center and her anesthesia residency at Harvard's Beth Israel Hospital. She also had that uh, responsibility of being a faculty at one point at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. And she also, while she was doing all of this, working in the operating room, she attended the UC Berkeley Law School, focusing on constitutional and administrative law. So she has so much to share with us because at this moment in the last two years, I'm, most of us have been looking into constitutional law, common law, all of these things so that we can be empowered. And she hosts a radio show called Health Freedom and she teaches classes in recognition of elder abuse and constitutional law for non-lawyers. Interesting. She said she teaches, <laughs> she teaches classes of elder abuse. So, <laughs> Dr. Singleton, thank you very much for being here again. Even if I mentioned some of your credentials, I do want to start if, by you please sharing your family background, your, the heights, the highlights of your family, of what brought you here. Because each of us has a story to tell and that played a role before and is playing a role now and in the future. Well, thank you. I don't know who you were talking about. It, it doesn't even sound like me, but well, I'm from a family of doctors and my grandfather on my mother's side graduated from Ohio State Medical School back in 1907 and was a doctor in a small town in Ohio and actually was going to leave because he wanted to go to a bigger town. And the big newspaper article about it, they said a thousand people showed up to beg him to stay. So he did stay. And 
he started a center for disadvantaged youth, just a tiny little house, and then it was expanded, and a whole group of towns folks created a big center. It's still there today in Lima, Ohio. It's called the Bradfield Center. It's been rebuilt three times with city bonds, and um, so that's him. My father was a general practitioner in San Diego. And thanks to my mother, she hated the weather back east. They were both from back east. And while my father was in the war, he was at Tuskegee. He was a flight surgeon. And in Alabama, my mother said, we're going out to California. And she looked for any city that had good weather and asked, wrote them a letter and asked them, do you need a doctor? So San Diego wrote back and said, yes, we need doctors. And my father spoke Spanish. And so he ended up with a practice that was um, treated all sorts of people. And uh, when government paid health care came in, Medi-Cal, he never signed up for it because he practiced medicine really totally based on the oath of Hippocrates, where you take care of people regardless of their ability to pay. And what he did was he just had a sliding scale of payment and charged people whatever they could afford. And uh, one of his patients had a little market and he paid us in food. And oh, wonderfully at Christmas time, we got paid in tamales, all different kinds. So that's kind of the background in growing up, hearing my father talk to his patients. Patients were like family and they were treated like people, like individuals. And one of the things we're seeing now, and this is what's so distressing, and I know why Nurse Grace just wanted to have this conversation, is we're losing that connection with people. And, you know, starting back with the HMOs and then electronic medical records and all these algorithms so people didn't have to sit and think and look face to face with the patient. So suddenly we're becoming like robots and we can't have that. Fantastic story. And you also have one interesting story about that. Well, your experience when you went to, was that El Salvador? Oh, oh my goodness. We went to El Salvador. I had some friends who had uh, come here from El Salvador. And one of the folks, he had been in the revolution and he went back to his village to um, help people out, you know, collect clothes and whatnot. So when I got involved with them, uh, Julio Tulio said, oh, they just don't have really any medical care, even though supposedly the state provides medical care. So we brought down simple things. And it was kind of funny because they stopped us at the airport. Like, were we coming down to deal drugs? And so we separated out all, all the different things. But simple things like just ibuprofen, Tylenol, um, vitamins for the older folks. And we just set up a clinic out there at the food tables. They kind of cleared everything off. And people came in with, you know, cramps and chronic headaches and 
muscle pains and all this sort of stuff. And I've never seen people happier to see a doctor. And my Spanish is marginal. But uh, the next year, we expanded it even more and we went to two villages. And it, it was kind of funny because I guess the government heard about it. And so they sent a couple government doctors to even expand the clinic. So we really felt like we were doing some good. And again, it was very heart to heart and doctor to patient. And that's how it ought to be. <clears throat> Wonderful to hear that as well, because I know most of the doctors who are speaking up, who's been in the front line since last year and even previous to that, are those doctors who have really expanded their uh, community work and even beyond United States. And there's a number of uh, medical mission that has been postponed just because all these crazy tyrannical things are happening. And so the more that we are not being able to be free to do what comes from our heart, the more that we get, like the more that we can reach out to meet, to help others. However, as uh, we know that they, we always become creative in how to reach out. Now, it's very obvious that which side you are on, although I know we don't mean to be on which sides, but the, the situation, the system just forced us to lean on to one side. How are you relating to your family members or to your friends? Shall I assume that some of them do not really agree to what you have to say or how you're handling may perhaps your patients well, it's interesting you, you put it that way. Of course, we tend to pick our friends or people who we hang out with because they agree with how they are. But my best friend of 45 years were opposites kind of politically, but where we always agree is on patient care. She is a hospice nurse and... Uh, when we first met, she was an operating room nurse. And one of the things that sort of bound us together was that we both looked at patients as when you're in the hospital or with any kind of patient anywhere, they always come first. And that kind of bound the two of us together. But it, it's interesting how COVID, you almost hate to use the word, it's like it it taints every discussion that has divided people so much and made it where people are afraid to discuss the pros and cons of vaccines, the pros and cons of hospital treatments and all the things that are happening with COVID that it has become divisive, but I'm not afraid to discuss it and you you we can't be afraid we can't be cowed by the people who call you names or you know say you're unscientific or whatever when you can sit there and show paper after paper after paper that supports your position but then that's what science is you're supposed to debate back and forth and that's what's really sad what's happening now is all the debate is closed and over one issue 
but it still comes back and 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 why we kind of look at it going back to hippocrates he was always about that patient who's sitting in front of you not every patient on earth and that's where there's this big conflict because the public health people say well you have to do this for the public health and and think about other people and this that and the other well if every patient is treated in their best self-interest that will make sure that everybody's healthy rather than having one thing that somebody says that everybody has to do because we're all different all patients are different and I mean, those of us in medicine know that it's one thing when we're giving treatments and yes, overall X treatment works for Y disease, but we've all had patients where something doesn't work and in fact can make them worse. So we always have to pay attention to the individual patient in front of us and a lot of times when I tell people that and try to make it look make them look at it that way that they kind of realize yeah we're all different and how can they tell all of us to do exactly the same thing so sometimes people kind of get it and everybody has some sort of example in their own life where one family member got sick from something but nobody else did and it's like yeah so we're all different and let's not argue, let's just try to do what's best for each person in front of us and allow people to hear all the information that's available out there. Don't censor anything. People are smart, people aren't stupid, and they need to hear about all avenues of treatment. I celebrate you with saying that because that views and news are really important more than ever. Now, at one point, Dr. Singleton, you ran for Congress in 2012. Do you think that still makes sense that we have to continue to, you know, find people who can maybe replace those who aren't working for the benefits of, of the people? So does that make still sense for you that good? And because in like in New Jersey, no matter how much strong we did to replace the governor, it's still the same governor. And now he's still having extension of whatever that he's doing for the, you know, to really impose mandates. So what's your thoughts on the political situation? And will you be running again? Oh, no, I will not. My my husband says, I don't think so. It's probably the hardest thing we ever did in our lives. And it two and a half years uh, straight of campaigning. We feel like it was worth it. We got a lot of people thinking a different way about government. The one thing I have learned and I'm really advocating for now is to make sure people run for any office that's available or any commission one i actually wanted to be on one of the local commissions but the mayor can't stand me because at a city council meeting i called him out for something he said that was wrong and one of the council people said don't wait for him to ever admit he's wrong she said he never does but anyway, the mayor is the one who appoints the people. 
So you kind of have to decide how much you're going to say at a city council meeting if you want to apply to be on one of these commissions. But that you realize is where the real power is. It's mm. on planning commission, school board, um, that this is how you can really affect things locally. And then you can only hope that the legislators higher up will pay attention to what the local rules and what the local people feel. One of the things out here in California that disturbs us so much is the legislators now are obvious that they're bought and paid for by pharmaceutical companies, various other corporations, and they have stopped caring what the people think. And this is what's so disturbing that people, fortunately in California, we have a process where we can put propositions on the ballot and people can do a direct vote for what they want. And the legislature has actually made laws that counteract what the people voted for. And you think, why are they even there? Well, it's like they're there just to get power and payoffs. And we certainly know that's not what the Constitution had in mind for our legislators, but it's up to us not to give up. And so many of the folks I work with are so depressed and feel like it doesn't matter what they do, they still don't have a voice in government. But bit by bit, I mean, because even in New Jersey, that one fellow won, the truck driver won. So, you know, <laughs> bit by bit, you can kind of uh, put a crack in their wall, but it is depressing. It's truly an exciting time, though it's very difficult and we could go downhill, but it's up to us to really cut that, <laughs> to interrupt where the powers to be wanted us to go. Now, thank you so much. I'll pass it on to John. Hi, Dr. Singleton. How are you today? Just fine. That's fantastic. Um, I do have a lot of questions regarding uh, your views on a lot of stuff, but I have to be a good boy uh, because I'm in the process of coming down to going down to Florida. So I have to play. I have the to land be a, of the free. Yeah, I have to be a good boy. So <laughs> I'll try not to make this a little too controversial. Uh, you did. Uh, I am from Greek descent, so I understand. I, I know my heritage quite well. I know my history quite well, about my people and everything. And um, you talked a lot about Hippocrates and um, that. And you're correct in everything that you said about him. It was between doctor and patient and that connection between the two. Um, and I've taken that into my own practice as a personal trainer where I look at my client and it's between trainer and client. Uh, I spoke to another doctor here in Ontario where I'm, where I'm at. And uh, he said that a lot of doctors have lost that connection. Where do you think that connection has been lost? And when do you think that happened? Well, it's interesting. It started, we can go way, way back. And it really started with third-party payments. And when um, 
Blue Cross started back in the 30s. This is certainly here in the States. But this whole idea of having a third party take over paying for health care and not having even the payment relationship be between the doctor and patient, that it just started separating the two. I mean, look at the idea. You see the doctor, you come in, say hello, goodbye, and um, don't pay anything. It gets paid at some point. Maybe all of it gets paid. Maybe you get a bill for some of it. But it doesn't connect with what you had. I remember I worked at a free clinic in Chinatown when I was in medical school. And the nurse said, now remember, we got these free drugs but you've got to charge at least a quarter or else the patient won't think it'll work. And we've almost gotten away from that. It's like the patient has to have some investment in their own health. And so we march up where we have third-party payment, private third-party payment. Then we have in 1965, we got or Medicaid and Medicare and there was that slow walk to getting there, things that people usually don't hear about. They paid for wives of soldiers during the war, but it was always bit by bit. And then after they had Medicare, Medicaid, then the government had a list as long as your arm of all these sub agencies that started controlling doctors. And the insurance companies have these drug formularies where I might say, I think the patient needs this drug, but it's not on the formulary. So if it's not on the formulary, the insurance company won't pay for it. So you can see where this going. There's all these cooks in the broth. And even when the doctor, and I remember the early days when all these HMOs came out, you try your best to work around them, but they've become so pervasive now. And I think the younger doctors have never seen it any other way. So they just get right into that mold. Oh, daddy told me to do this. This is what I'm going to do. So they're almost losing that ability to be a free thinker. And, and that's on purpose. I mean, not to exaggerate. So, you, you know, John, you talk about not being controversial, but you look at back in the Mao revolution, Pol Pot, who did they kill first? Doctors and teachers. They wanted to get rid of free thinkers. And this is what's scary to me as you start to take away the doctor's ability to think for themselves and have conversations with the patient um, that you want to have, uh, you wonder what's next. And, you know, like zip up, you can't say what you really want to say. And, you know, supposedly, just like with the oath of Hippocrates, that everything, he called them sacred, sacred conversations that you have between doctor and patient. And now with these electronic medical records, what happened to the sacred secrets? They're gone, you know, and and, and so this is, this is disturbing. So long answer to short question. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, 
um, I see it in the personal training world as well. Like uh, you see trainers with their clients and just like, just like doctors, we have very sacred conversations. Like I know more about my clients than their own spouses know about them. And um, it's, it's, it's scary to the depth of uh, connection that uh, trainers have with their, with their clients. And I'm sure doctors have with their patients. It's even deeper than that. And um, to, be actually physically looking at a client and saying you're doing this movement wrong it's like how do you know how do you truly know that they're doing it wrong how do you know what the muscular imbalances are on that person that they have to adjust that specific way like my way is i i put my hands on clients and i let them know my hands are going to go on your body in places that you may feel uncomfortable but if i can't feel what I do what you're doing. I can't see through your clothes. I can't see through your skin to see the muscles and see the joints to see how the stress is being. So I have to feel it. And um, the conversation that I had with this doctor here, when I told him that he was blown away, he's like, not even doctors put their hands on people anymore. Well, you're, you're so right. Interestingly, I just had this conversation yesterday with my doctor because so many people were out sick with COVID. She had canceled appointments this week. Uh, she only had one person in the office who hadn't tested positive. And I said, well, fine, I'll just make the appointment for later. Nothing's really wrong. I said, cause I don't want a telemedicine visit. I just said, I want somebody to listen to my heart. I want somebody to feel my abdomen, feel my pulses. And, uh, and it's interesting, you say, you know, as a personal trainer, you have this touch. Well, touch is so important. And that's yet another thing that started to be lost. I remember years ago, when Stanford Medical School was doing anatomy with videos, and when I had anatomy, it was with cadavers. And even though it was a person who was long deceased and embalmed, you still got that sense that there was a human who had inhabited that body. There was a soul who had inhabited that body. And you start to learn how precious life is how precious each individual is. And when you start doing everything by, by video and then having the doctor come in and draw lab tests to find out about your liver, not that lab tests aren't important, but why don't you feel it first? See if it's tender, see if it's enlarged. But a lot of these folks aren't being taught that way anymore which is uh, really sad like uh, the person that trained me um, one of his prerequisites for signing up with him is buying a skeleton and uh, resistance bands uh, mine is actually in the closet <laughs> <laughs> i have to toss it before i cross the border <laughs> <laughs> to buy a new one when i hit florida um so do you think something like um to get a little bit controversial, because I just can't help myself. It's the Greek in me. Um, do you think that something like social uh, 
social health care would be a benefit because I oh. live in because I live in a province where we do have social health care and well I'll I'll ask one thing and kind of turn around on you it it's interesting I would say for some people because they've almost been trained this way they don't know any other way to to seek health care I'm still a proponent of direct care between a doctor and a patient with financial arrangements being made in another way. There's actually, it's called direct primary care, that there's a practice out here in California where the people pay about $1,000 a year and get all the treatment by the doctor. And they have it set up like a charity so you can add some extra money and the extra money will help pay for somebody who can't afford it and they're able to cover everybody who wants to be in that practice and then the only insurance a person would need would be hospital insurance because now hospitals are so expensive that none but a gazillionaire could afford to pay their own hospital bill but most people don't go to the hospital. Most people have day-to-day -day problems, even if you have a chronic problem like chronic lung disease or heart disease, you don't go in the hospital, but you do see the doctor, you do see trainers, you do see other medical professionals uh, to help keep healthy. And people need to feel some sort of investment in their health, just like anything else. My son was, uh, who's a psychologist, was teaching a class when he was teaching high school. And it was a class in helping the kids take that final test in order to graduate high school. And 30 kids had signed up. And then when the summer came, three kids showed up in the class. So he calls the parents and, you know, where's the kid? Where's the kid? The answer he uniformly got, well, it was free, so we don't care. And we don't want people to think that way about their health, where, well, it's free, so then they don't value their health. They don't value your knowledge if it's free. And yes, you need to be paid to make a living. Everybody does. But you charge one because you gave a service and services shouldn't be free. And two, the patient needs to appreciate it. And I mean, they've even done studies on that with pricing, with drugs, that patients are given the exact same drug, but they charge more for one than the other. The patients who had the most expensive drug had better outcomes, even though it was the same drug. So, you know, there's something psychological about an exchange. And it, it kind of makes a contract between the two people. Now, so I'm going to turn around and ask you, since you are in a socialized medicine situation, do you feel like people's health is better? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Only because um, you have healthcare professionals that want to do their jobs and they're being 
mandated to do stuff to themselves to risk the, their 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 lives on account of being funded by I'll call it a big parent. So you have you have two sections to the social health care. You have the business aspect, which people here here are not looking at, and then you have the uh, the, the public aspect, which everybody's looking at. Like I can go to the hospital, I can get top notch care. Well, I'm not going to say top notch care because like third world country here almost, but it's it's care just to the point where you're not going to die. And in some cases, if you're like less than a certain percentage, they will kill you off because you're just a strain in another number. Um, so no. And we have this mixed perceived uh, idea that we are not paying for it, which is another lie. We are paying yeah. for it. Our tax dollars, uh, every or when we pay our taxes, a portion of that goes to healthcare, which nobody sees because it's mm -hmm. part of uh, a centralized government uh, insurance policy. So, yeah, yeah, well, it's interesting. One of one of the things you know that we'll well, we might as well talk about today. And and it's great that you folks do other things other than just the standard medicine is general health. And there's a statistic about diabetes in America that is really pretty shocking. Back in 1965, when Medicare and Medicaid came into existence, presumably to help people have better health care, 1.6% of Americans were considered diabetic. Now, last year, it's up to almost 11%. So what's happened? Clearly the healthcare system didn't help with diabetes. And we know a whole lot of things intervened, you know, more McDonald's and, and uh, processed food, uh, people sitting behind the computer, children not out playing, but sitting doing video games. I'm sure there's tons of factors that go in just suddenly we aren't healthy. The percent of people that have healthy lifestyles dropped from 7% down to 3% over the last 10 years. And worse, it's like about 30% of children are obese, overweight or obese. And it's what's wrong and Part of it, I do think, is the loss of connection. Again, connection helps. You've got to talk to people. It's like, John, you saying how you know about people's lives. You know that people have certain triggers for things. And you've got to talk to somebody in order to learn that. You know, you're chatting with the patient and then suddenly it comes up in conversation that their dog died after 15 years or gee, I never noticed this until after my husband died. Well, they had it before, but the husband's death brought that problem out. You won't know those things. You can't learn those things in a seven-minute visit where check the box, check the box, check the box. 
then write a prescription for some drug that they're advertising on TV. And then that patient's out the door. That's not good medicine. No. Um, thank you so much. Um, I have a ton more questions for you, especially with, with this uh, with this line of questions. Um, I'm going to pass you out to Hartman. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to have you here, Dr. Singleton. And um, yeah, it's um, the interesting part is that with, let's say it this way, with the establishing of the universities of medicine, everything has changed. And um, it is such an uh, industry, and um, let's say it this way, especially in, um, in countries where you have a lot of social care. In that moment, there is many, you do, the, the people don't like to think about their health care by themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have this also here in Germany, for example, if you give them, try to give them alternative uh, su support and they have to pay suddenly by themselves, they say to the doctor, no, please give me the drug um, because I have already paid for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, the problem is that we are facing in the, the, the situation what we are facing right now is also let's say the control by this system, especially by, by the sharing of the drugs to the people. Because in the US, I think the, the consume of the medical drugs is very high. Yes. And it has an effect on the brain and on the emotional body. And the most people forget this. For example, if you take medicines, it has side effects. And uh, these side effects can also be in emotional connections to other people mm -hmm. in many times. So that so that there is a um, real um, dehumanization from the emotional and uh, relation aspect. Uh, um, I no, you're so right. In fact, I had written a paper called somatizing America using this soma, which was the drug that was supposed to make everybody feel good, um, you know, left over from these dystopian novels. And 70% uh, of Americans take one kind of drug or another. And it, and most of it is antidepressants in women. And again, if you took some time to talk to somebody, you might find out what the real problem is instead of just covering up problems. And so many times with the older folks, thank goodness they're kind of having a movement of wipe out all the drugs and start from scratch. You'll see the drug list of folks and not including vitamins. There's seven drugs on the list and you really start to examine them. And some of them are counteracting each other and you just wipe them all out. I did that to my mother when she was in her mid eighties and she ended up being on nothing 
and was better than she was when she was on the seven drugs. Her mind cleared and, you know, she, she had dementia. She wasn't completely clear, but she, her, her life got on a regular schedule. She was awake during the day and then slept at night. All that stuff gets all messed up. Um, because like you say, the drugs have side effects and it's not to say that there's not good that comes out of drugs. Certainly there is. And, uh, and they're necessary, but we have to think more about it. And particularly the antidepressants that seem to get written for like they're water. And that that's kind of scary because what's normal for someone to feel, you know, it seems like we're supposed to have ups and downs in life. No, we don't want anyone to be clinically depressed where they're considering taking their life. But what happened to talking through things rather than just giving a drug and making everybody kind of all be the same? That just something about that just doesn't seem right. Um, um, and I would like to go a little bit also concerning California, because um, how do you see the situation of alternative medicine in California? Do you, um, because um, let's say it this way, the measurements are quite strict in in, in California, and I think um, uh, let's say it this way: in Germany, we know that the government has uh, gives a specific task to universities in order to find out what is the opinion of the population mm. yeah, so that they can so that they know okay we can go this measurement we can take this step measurement and um, for this reason we are in the position what we are right now and um, what is the situation in California uh, do you have people, do you have many people who are open for alternative medicine or is the majority going, uh, let's say, uh, the main road? And um, what is what is about the mindset in California? Because uh, in, in, in the US there are so many differences concerning measurements and dealing with specific problems, let's say it this way. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has also to do many times with the mindset of the people in the country. Well, it's interesting because that's one place that certainly the people of California are very open to alternative treatments and, you know, going down the list, whether it be body work, uh, acupuncture, uh, they're very open to it the medical board in our business and professions code, there's actually uh, one section that talks about complementary and alternative medicine, very small. It just says that a doctor can do it, but they have to give the patient alternatives and let them know that it might not work. You know, it's, it's just basically saying, tell the truth, which presumably any good practitioner of any kind will tell the truth. This might help. This might not help. The alternative would be, you know, taking X drug and you explain it all to the patient. And 
Certainly, I think a lot of people who like complementary and alternative techniques feel like as long as you aren't doing any harm to the patient and slowing down some treatment where they could get sicker, why not try something that's less invasive, that won't do as you described, where it basically changes your whole body once you take a pill, even though it's supposed to do one thing, it's going through your whole body. And wouldn't it be nice if you could do something local? When I was doing pain management, I used acupuncture and injections and tried to get people off regular drugs, and many of them did. And a lot of it was just spending time with the patient. I spent an hour with everybody, period. First visit was two hours. And you find out what it is that's really bothering them. So we, we still come back to you need time with the patient. And it's one of the reasons I am very thankful for people who do other things like trainers, like life coaches, diet coaches, you know, all the other things, because that's your job. And you can spend time with the patient that these days with all these poor doctors being hired by the big health systems, 50% of the doctors are hired by health systems in the United States they kind of have to toe the line and, and have those seven minute visits. So you really do need other people to help keep the patient healthy and encourage the patient to be healthy on their own, to not have the two chocolate bars, et cetera. But you have to talk to people. You just can't shake your finger and say, don't eat that. You know, you got to help them. And especially I, I had a, blood pressure clinic at my old church and they had a food bank and one of the things we started doing was a uh, nutritionist came in and would have a couple of recipes with whatever the food was that was in the food bank to try to say here's what you can do with this food to turn it into a healthy meal and uh First time one person was in the little audience and after a few times, more and more people came and it got up to about 10 people actually stopped and listened and learned how to make a healthy meal. And this is something that a lot of people don't even know how to do anymore. And no judgment here, but with both parents working, and the mother hasn't figured out how can I make these meals, still go to work for eight hours a day, come back, clean house, do all this other stuff without having prepared foods, foods that are heavy in salt and, you know, all the things that happen when you get takeout food or prepared food. And there's ways when I was working full time, that's kind of what I did on Sunday afternoon was cook and make things that I could heat up during the week, but at least they were made fresh. You know, you could make chicken and broccoli or something like that, and then you have it ready and make it during the week. So there are ways to do it, but again, people need help. They need coaching, and uh, 
because they don't learn. And now that we're in the second generation of people doing fast food, it, it's not even like how my mother taught me how to cook. Now people's mothers don't know how to cook. So it's all these things, you know, it's funny when you talk about the social health care and all that. Sometimes people get just directed down one path and say, oh, well, if we pay for the medical care, everybody will be fine. But it's such a big picture. There's so many elements that go into health. And I, I think sometimes that gets ignored and they forget about human nature and that we're all kind of lazy and, and have to be prodded sometime and or don't realize the woman who has four kids to take care of is a lot different from somebody who doesn't have any kids and change things depending on the patient. But, you know, we come all the way back around, got to look at that individual patient. And um, one question, um, do you see that the Obamacare health system what was the because I what I have read about this is that many old experienced doctors had to retire and were exchanged by new doctors who had no experiences. And um, do you have do you have, do you make this uh, or do you make did you, did you make this uh, experience in California as well, so that... Um... Yeah, well, I'll tell you one of the things, and it wasn't the care and the weird setup for the insurance policies that Obamacare brought out. One of the things that went by a lot of people, and there's no reason uh, the patients would even pay attention to this, but Back in 2009, there was something called the High Tech Act that was part of the stimulus bill. And that was connecting electronic medical records to payments. And it cost probably about $60,000 to set up one of these electronic medical record system. And that didn't count you know, what you'd have to do to have upkeep with computer stuff and, you know, breakdowns and glitches and all that. So you'd have to have a contract. Well, if you were in practice and are 60 and maybe want to practice 12 more years and you're thinking, okay, and you're making a modest living that are you going to make that investment and likely have to hire another office worker to manage all this stuff. And I certainly saw that with my father when Medicaid came out. He had one person in his office, Gloria. And when Gloria called in sick, her cousin would fill in for her. If he had to do all that paperwork, he would have had to hire another person. And these days, And, and certainly in California, it's $17 an hour minimum wage that add another employee into the practice. And suddenly 
you start making a decision. Is trying to learn all this new stuff worth it? Is adding another employee to the roles worth it? And the answer becomes no. And uh, that's why several doctors, instead of quitting, just stop taking all insurance. They call it opting out, opted out of Medicare. So you don't take government money because that's another problem taking government money. If you don't charge everybody the same, it's considered fraud. So like what my father was doing, he it would be considered fraud if he was signed up for government money. And it kind of erases charity care when you have that sort of system. So some people just got out of the system entirely and started these direct pay practices that actually did quite well. A lot of people said, oh, you'll never make it with direct pay. Patients won't pay. I think what people didn't realize is how much personal care is worth. I remember one doctor told the story of she had put some stitches in a lady who'd cut herself and, and the woman had to go on a business trip and needed the stitches out a little earlier and she was still packing for the business trip. So she asked the doctor, would it be possible to come to the house and take the stitches out? And so the doctor did that. And in her mind, she was wondering, well, what do I charge for that? And she was thinking, I don't know, maybe a hundred dollars since I had to bring materials and drive to her house. And so when the patient asked how much it was. The doctor just said, well, how much was it worth to you? It was worth $300 to the patient. So, you know, it's kind of like she learned a lesson of now, obviously that patient could afford it, but we undersell ourselves. We don't realize how important having a personal touch is to a patient. And if they have the money, they'll pay for it. Or if they don't have the money, at least they pay for it in gratitude. And there's nothing better than a heartfelt thank you, which is another thing that starts to go out the window when you get the third party involved, where people don't say thank you. And, you know, which is a real loss. And uh, there's even a big article recently written about it, The Power of Thank You to help with physician burnout that, uh, and I'm sure the same with, with nurses as well, that if nobody ever says, thank you, you know, what, why am I doing this? Cause we're all human. We all want to be praised. And, um, but that disconnect, that dehumanizing that happens between patient and doctor, helps lead to that sort of behavior. And then everybody doesn't win. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's all a question about investment. And it's a very, yeah, it's like dancing. Well, this is like a da the dancing around the golden cow, what we call. Yeah. And that's it. And nothing else anymore. And for this reason, um, there is no space for art. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to have here on the show, Dr. Singleton, I, give, I pass to Grace. Thank you. 
<laughs> this you. is awesome. This good, wonderful conversation. We don't have to be so mad at things right now. Just gather all that good stuff. But I have there's one question from the viewer, and it says, um, "How about with COVID? So many going to the hospital and can't afford to pay. So who?" What's going to happen with the bills? Well, this is very interesting that this is a situation where having that, as they call major medical insurance, is so necessary for a situation like COVID. And thinking of it like those car shield things for your car, you know, you pay for an oil change, but you have insurance to pay for something very big. And I think it's insurance is necessary for something like this, particularly when, but that's a whole nother, we could have a whole nother show about the government telling people they can't go to work. So then they're not earning any money and then they get sick and where are they going to get the money to pay for it? So it's a situation like that, that you're supposed to depend on the government but not for everyday life. Thank you. What, are, what other messages do you want to say to the audience or to anyone, and especially at this time that it seems like everything gets worse and worse and worse. You mentioned about California earlier and you know, just we've seen the videos on the Kazakhstan, what happened to Kazakhstan, it, you know, and finance and everything. And we see the dip dip of the you know market and any more messages and anything also related to what you do for the individualized or personalized care i just think we just have to know that no matter what's going on around us that you have to pay attention to yourself you have to pay attention to your family and remembering that you know, your household is your first government. It's it's your first everything. Relying on your friends, it's one of the things that was so lost with the COVID when people were isolated. Um, they found that isolation is the worst torture you can give somebody. And we were tortured. And now that we're kind of allowed to get out, stay out, live your life, Read everything you can about COVID so you're educated and realize that not everybody doesn't die. Some people do. There's certain risk factors, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, greater than the age of 65, but other people don't have those same sort of risk factors and don't die in high percentages at all. And so learn these numbers, learn these things so you can feel comfortable in how you're living your day-to-day -day life. And most important, realize that the government isn't king. Sometimes they act like they are, but they aren't. And uh, you just have to remember that. And just because somebody comes knocking on the door and, and says, like Ronald Reagan would say, the worst uh, words in the English language, or I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> you remember that, no, help yourself. 
And that's the biggest thing that, and it bothered me so much when the whole COVID thing started is they never talked about things you can do to help yourself. Take your vitamin D, vitamin C, um, quercetin, zinc, all these things that you can do for yourself to build your immune system, exercise, get sunshine if you can. And this is what we all need to do. No guarantee you won't get ill, but we have to get in the habit of helping ourselves. And it, there's a follow-up comment and question that says, doesn't the government pay for the poor where the middle class gets stuck with the bills? Well, they're so right. Mm -hmm. And this has always been a problem. And it's one of the things when John was talking about having social care. So if you have it for some, should you have it for everybody? Because there is somebody that's getting stuck with the bill. And, you know bringing back California. Now the governor, governor wants to pay for even illegal aliens. And, you know, somebody's going to get stuck with the bill. And that is a problem. Uh, and is the answer so-called universal care? Or is the answer having good, solid personal insurance not attached to your job? but personal insurance that are at reasonable prices. And that would happen if there was a lot of competition in the market. You know, 40 years ago, there were 800 insurance companies that are in, that offered health insurance. You know, now there's under 10. So what happened? Again, that more and more control. So, you know, yes, it is a problem. And I wish I 100% had the answer to keep the middle class people for footing the bill for everybody, it seems. And uh, uh, the problem is, and, and something John mentioned, when people think they're not paying, when you have universal health care, you are paying because you're paying taxes. And again, there's always going to be a group of people who don't make enough money to pay taxes, but that's where you get into that vicious cycle. And, and we saw this happen with the COVID stimulus money, that if you're making more money from the government than you would if you went out and got a job, something is not right in that societal plan. And so you've got to take it one step back and say, at some point you have to stop and say, if you're able-bodied and can have a job, you need to get a job or you're not going to get this money. Thank you. Is, is the, what's the best website that people can reach you, Dr. Singleton? Uh, Marilyn Singleton, mdjd.com. Thank you very much. And to all our viewers, we thank you. Do take care of yourselves. There's no much, so much power when you learn how to take care of yourselves. Because no matter what goes down, you're still up and you're able to really even help others. So um, this podcast um, live stream will be uploaded in um, BitChute, in Rumble, in Earth Heroes, and in Brighteon. 
And so, and in the end, an eternal reverence, joy, and gratitude for the unceasing love and mercy of the one most source, most divine. We thank you for this moment. And we hope and pray that all of us will get through this with smile, even if things will be so difficult. Don't let anything or anyone take the joy out of your life. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.